Chapter 4 of The Wolf Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Brian Aidy. The Wolf Hunters by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter 4 Roderick's First Taste of the Hunter's Life. By this time it was bitter cold. The lakes and rivers were frozen deep, and a light snow covered the ground. Already two weeks behind their plans, the young wolf hunters and the old Indian made forced marches around the northern extremity of Lake Nipigon, and on the sixth day found themselves on the Ombabika River, where they were compelled to stop on account of a dense snowstorm. A temporary camp was made, and it was while constructing this camp that Mukoki discovered signs of wolves. It was therefore decided to remain for a day or two and investigate the hunting grounds. On the morning of the second day, Wabi shot at and wounded the old bull moose, which met such a tragic end a few hours later, and that same morning the two boys made a long tour to the north in the hope of finding that they were in a good game country, which would also mean that there were plenty of wolves. This left Mukoki alone in camp. Thus far, in their desire to cover as much ground as possible before the heavy snows came, Wabi and his companions had not stopped to hunt for game, and for six days their only meat had been bacon and jerked venison. Mukoki, whose prodigious appetite was second only to the shrewdness with which he stalked game to satisfy it, determined to add to their larder if possible during the other's absence, and with this object in view he left camp late in the afternoon to be gone, as he anticipated, not longer than an hour or so. With him he carried two powerful wolf traps slung over his shoulders. Stealing cautiously along the edge of the river, his eyes and ears alert for game, Mukoki suddenly came upon the frozen and half-eaten carcass of a red deer. It was evident that the animal had been killed by wolves either the day or night before, and from the tracks in the snow the Indian concluded that not more than four wolves had participated in the slaughter and feast. That these wolves would return to continue their banquet, probably that night, Mukoki's many experiences as a wolf-hunter assured him, and he paused long enough to set his traps, afterward covering them over with three or four inches of snow. Continuing his hunt, the old Indian soon struck the fresh spore of a deer. Believing that the animal would not travel for any great distance in the deep snow, he swiftly took up the trail. Half a mile farther on, he stopped abruptly with a grunt of unbounded surprise. Another hunter had taken up the trail. With increased caution, Mukoki now advanced. Two hundred feet more, and a second pair of moccasined feet joined in the pursuit, and a little later still a third. Led on by curiosity more than by hope of securing a partnership share in the quarry, the Indian slipped silently and swiftly through the forest. As he emerged from a dense growth of spruce through which the tracks led him, Mukoki was treated to another surprise, by almost stumbling over the carcass of the deer he had been following. A brief examination satisfied him that the doe had been shot at least two hours before. The three hunters had cut out the heart, liver, and tongue, and had also taken the hindquarters, leaving the remainder of the carcass and the skin. Why had they neglected the most valuable part of their spoils? With a new gleam of interest in his eyes, Mukoki carefully scrutinized the moccasin trails. He soon discovered that the Indians ahead of him were in great haste, and that after cutting the choicest meat from the doe, they had started off to make up for lost time by running. With another grunt of astonishment, the old Indian returned to the carcass, quickly stripped off the skin, wrapped in it the forequarters and ribs of the doe, and thus loaded, took up the home trail. It was dark when he reached camp. Wabi and Rod had not yet returned. Building a huge fire and hanging the ribs of the doe on a spit before it, he anxiously awaited their appearance. 
Half an hour later, he heard the shout which brought him quickly to where Wabi was holding the partly unconscious form of Rod in his arms. It took but a few moments to carry the injured youth to camp, and not until Rod was resting on a pile of blankets in their shack, with the warmth of the fire reviving him, did Wabi vouchsafe an explanation to the old Indian. "'I guess he's got a broken arm, Mookie,' he said. "'Have you any hot water?' "'Shot?' asked the old hunter, paying no attention to the question. He dropped upon his knees beside Rod, his long brown fingers reaching out anxiously. "'Shot?' "'No, hit with a club.' We met three Indian hunters who were in camp and who invited us to eat with them. While we were eating, they jumped upon our backs. Rod got that and lost his rifle. Mukoki quickly stripped the wounded boy of his garments, bearing his left arm inside. The arm was swollen and almost black, and there was a great bruise on Rod's body a little above the waist. Mukoki was a surgeon by necessity, a physician such as one finds only in the vast, unblazed wildernesses, where nature is the teacher. Crudely he made his examination, pinching and twisting the flesh and bones, until Rod cried out in pain, but in the end there was a glad triumph in his voice, and he said, "'No bone broke. Hurt most here.' And he touched the bruise. "'Near broke rib, not quite. Took wind out and made great deal sick. Want good supper, hot coffee, rubbin' bear's grease, then better.' Rod, who had opened his eyes, smiled faintly, and Wabi gave a half-shout of delight. "'Not so bad as we thought, eh, Rod?' he cried. You can't fool Mookie. If he says your arm isn't broken, why, it isn't, and that's all there is to it. Let me bolster you up in these blankets, and we'll soon have a supper that will sizzle the aches out of you. I smell meat. Fresh meat. With a chuckle of pleasure, Mukoki jumped to his feet and ran out to where the ribs of the dough were slowly broiling over the fire. They were already done to a rich brown, and their dripping juice filled the nostrils with an appetizing odor. By the time Wabi had applied Mukoki's prescription to his comrade's wounds and had done them up in bandages, the tempting feast was spread before them. As a liberal section of the ribs was placed before him, together with cornmeal cakes and a cup of steaming coffee, Rod could not suppress a happy though somewhat embarrassed laugh. "'I'm ashamed of myself, Wabi,' he said. "'Here I've been causing so much bother, like some helpless kid, and now I find I haven't even the excuse of a broken arm, and I'm as hungry as a bear. Looks pretty yellow, doesn't it?' just as though I was scared to death. So help me, I almost wish my arm was broken. Mukoki had buried his teeth in a huge chunk of fat rib, but he lowered it with a great chuckling grunt, half of his face smeared with the first results of his feast. Whole lot sick, he explained. Be sick some more, mighty sick, maybe vomit lots. Oh, shrieked Wabi. How is that for cheerful news, Rod? His merriment echoed far out into the night. Suddenly he caught himself and peered suspiciously into the gloom beyond the circle of firelight. "'Do you suppose they would follow?' he asked. A more cautious silence followed, and the Indian youth quickly related the adventures of the day to Mukoki, how, in the heart of the forest, several miles beyond the lake, they had come upon the Indian hunters, had accepted of their seemingly honest hospitality, and in the midst of their meal had suffered an attack from them. So sudden and unexpected had been the assault that one of the Indians got away with Rod's rifle, ammunition belt, and revolver before any effort could be made to stop him. Wabi was under the other two Indians when Rod came to his assistance, with the result that the latter was struck two heavy blows, either with a club or a gunstock. So tenaciously had the Indian boy clung to his own weapon that his assailants, after a brief struggle, darted into the dense underbrush, evidently satisfied with the white boy's equipment. They were of Woonga's people without a doubt, finished Wabi. It puzzles me why they didn't kill us. They had half a dozen chances to shoot us, but didn't seem to want to do us any great injury. 
Either the measures taken at the post are making them reform, or... He paused, a troubled look in his eyes. Immediately Mukoki told of his own experience and of the mysterious haste of the three Indians who had slain the doe. It is certainly curious, rejoined the young Indian. They couldn't have been the ones we met, but I'll wager they belong to the same gang. I wouldn't be surprised if we had hit upon one of Wunga's retreats. We've always thought he was in the Thunder Bay regions, to the west, and that is where Father is watching for him now. We've hit the hornet's nest, Mookie, and the only thing for us to do is to get out of this country as fast as we can. We'd make a nice pot shot just at this moment, volunteered Rod, looking across the dense blackness on the opposite side of the river, where the moonlight seemed to make even more impenetrable the wall of gloom. As he spoke, there came a slight sound from behind him, the commotion of a body moving softly beyond the wall of spruce boughs, then a curious, suspicious sniffing, and after that, a low whine. Listen! Wabi's command came in a tense whisper. He leaned close against the boughs, stealthily parted them, and slowly thrust his head through the aperture. Hello, wolf, he whispered. What's up? An arm's length away, tied before a smaller shelter of spruce, a gaunt, dog-like animal stood in a rigid, listening attitude. An instant's glance, however, would have assured one that it was not a dog, but a full-grown wolf. From the days of its puppyhood, Wabi had taught it the ways of dogdom, yet had the animal perversely clung to its wild instincts. A weakness in that thong, a slip of the collar, and Wolf would have bounded joyously into the forests to seek forever the packs of his fathers. Now the babiche rope was taut. Wolf's muzzle was turned half to the sky. His ears were alert. Half-sounding notes rattled in his throat. "'There's something near our camp,' announced the Indian boy, drawing himself back quickly. "'Mookie!' He was interrupted by a long, mournful howl from the captive wolf. Mukoki had jumped to his feet with the alertness of a cat, and now with his gun in his hand, slunk around the edge of the shelter and buried himself in the gloom. Roderick lay quiet while Wabi, seizing the remaining rifle, followed him. "'Lie over there in the dark, Rod, where the firelight doesn't show you up,' he cautioned in a low voice. "'Probably it is only some animal that has stumbled onto our camp, but we want to make sure.' Ten minutes later the young hunter returned alone. "'False alarm,' he laughed cheerfully. "'There's a part of a carcass of a red deer up the creek a bit. "'It has been killed by wolves, and wolves smell some of his own blood coming in to the feast. "'Muki has set traps there, and we may have our first scalp in the morning.' "'Where's Mukoki?' "'On watch. "'He's going to keep guard until late after midnight, and then I'll turn out. "'We can't be too careful with the Woongas in the neighborhood.' "'Rod shifted himself uneasily. "'What shall we do tomorrow?' he asked. Get out, replied Wabi with emphasis. That is, if you're able to travel. From what Mukoki tells me, and from what you and I already know, Wunga's people must be in the forest beyond the lake. We'll cut a trail up the Ombabika for two or three days before we strike camp. You and Muki can start out as soon as it's light enough. And you, began Rod. Oh, I'm going to take a run back over our old wolf trail and collect the scalps we shot today. There's a month's salary back there for you, Rod. Now let's turn in. Good night. Sleep tight and be sure to wake up early in the morning. The boys, exhausted by the adventures of the day, were soon in profound slumber. And though midnight came, and hour after hour passed between then and dawn, the faithful Mukoki did not awaken them. Never for a moment neglecting his caution, the old Indian watched tirelessly over the camp. With the first appearance of day, he urged the fire into a roaring blaze, raked out a great mass of glowing coals, and proceeded to get breakfast. Wabi discovered him at this task when he awoke from his slumber. "'I didn't think you would play this trick on me, Muki,' he said, a flush of embarrassment gathering in his brown face. 
It's awfully good of you, and all that, but I wish you wouldn't treat me as if I were a child any longer, old friend. He placed his hand affectionately upon the kneeling Mukoki's shoulder, and the old hunter looked up at him with a happy, satisfied grin on his weather-beaten visage, wrinkled and of the texture of leather by nearly fifty years of life in the wilderness. It was Mukoki who had first carried the baby Wabi about in the woods upon his shoulders. It was he who had played with him, cared for him, and taught him in the ways of the wild in early childhood. And it was he who had missed him most, with little Minnetaki, when he went away to school. All the love in the grim old redskin's heart was for the Indian youth and his sister, and to them Mukoki was a second father, a silent, watchful guardian and comrade. This one loving touch of Wabi's hand was ample reward for the long night's duty, and his pleasure expressed itself in two or three low chuckling grunts. "'Had heap bad day,' he replied. "'Very much tired. Me feel good. Better than sleep.' He rose to his feet and handed Wabi the long fork with which he manipulated the meat on the spits. "'You can tend to that,' he added. "'I go see traps.' Rod, who had awakened and overheard these last remarks, called out from the shack, "'Wait a minute, Mukoki. I'm going with you. If you've got a wolf, I want to see him.' "'Got one sure enough,' grinned the old Indian. In a few minutes Rod came out, fully dressed and with a much healthier color in his face than when he went to bed the preceding night. He stood before the fire, stretched out one arm, then the other, gave a slight grimace of pain, and informed his anxious comrades that he seemed to be as well as ever, except that his arm and side were very sore. Walking slowly that Rod might find himself, as Wabi expressed it, the two went up the river. It was a dull gray morning, and occasionally large flakes of snow fell, giving evidence that before the day was far advanced another storm would set in. Mukoki's traps were not more than an eighth of a mile from camp, and as the two rounded a certain bend in the river, the old hunter suddenly stopped with a huge grunt of satisfaction. Following the direction in which he pointed, Rod saw a dark object lying in the snow a short distance away. "'That's him!' exclaimed the Indian. As they approached, the object became animate, pulling and tearing in the snow as though in the agonies of death. A few moments more and they were close up to the captive. "'She-wolf!' explained Mukoki. He gripped the axe which he had brought with him and approached within a few feet of the crouching animal. Rod could see that one of the big steel traps had caught the wolf on the foreleg and that the other had buried its teeth in one of the hind legs. Thus held, the doomed animal could make little effort to protect itself and crouched in sullen quiet, its white fangs gleaming in a noiseless defiant snarl, its eyes shining with pain and anger, and with only its thin starved body which jerked and trembled as the Indian came nearer, betraying signs of fear. To Rod, it might have been a pitiful sight had there not come to him a thought of the preceding night and of his own and Wabi's narrow escape from the pack. Two or three quick blows of the axe, and the wolf was dead. With a skill which can only be found among those of his own race, Mukoki drew his knife, cut deftly around the wolf's head just below the ears, and with one downward, one upward, and two sidewise jerks, tore off the scalp. Suddenly, without giving a thought to his speech, there shot from Rod, Is that the way you scalp people? Mukoki looked up. His jaw fell, and then he gave the nearest thing to a real laugh that Rod had ever heard come from between his lips. When Mukoki laughed, it was usually in a half-chuckle, a half-gurgle, something that neither Rod nor Wabi could have imitated had they tried steadily for a month. <laughs> Never scalp white people, the old Indian shot back. Father did when young man. Did great scalp business. <laughs> Mukoki had not done chuckling to himself even when they reached camp. Scarcely ten minutes were taken in eating breakfast. Snow was already beginning to fall, and if the hunters took up the trail at once, their tracks would undoubtedly be entirely obliterated by midday, which was the best possible thing that could happen for them in the Woonga country. 
On the other hand, Wabi was anxious to follow back over the wolf trail before the snow shut it in. There was no danger of their becoming separated and lost, for it was agreed that Rod and Mukoki should travel straight up the frozen river. Wabi would overtake them before nightfall. Arming himself with his rifle, revolver, knife, and a keen-edged belt axe, the Indian boy lost no time in leaving camp. A quarter of an hour later, Wabi came out cautiously on the end of the lake where had occurred the unequal duel between the old bull moose and the wolves. A single glance told him what the outcome of the duel had been. Twenty rods out upon the snow, he saw parts of a great skeleton and a huge pair of antlers. As he stood on the arena of the mighty battle, Wabi would have given a great deal if Rod could have been with him. There lay the heroic old moose, now nothing more than a skeleton, but the magnificent head and horns still remained, the largest head that the Indian youth in all his wilderness life had ever seen, and it occurred to him that if this head could be preserved and taken back to civilization, it would be worth a hundred dollars or more. That the old bull had put up a magnificent fight was easily discernible. Fifty feet away were the bones of a wolf, and almost under the skeleton of the moose were those of another. The heads of both still remained, and Wabi, after taking their scalps, hurried on over the trail. Halfway across the lake where he had taken his last two shots were the skeletons of two more wolves, and in the edge of the spruce forest he found another. This animal had evidently been wounded further back, and had later been set upon by some of the pack and killed. Half a mile deeper in the forest he came upon a spot where he had emptied five shells into the pack, and here he found the bones of two more wolves. He had seven scalps in his possession when he turned back over the home trail. Beside the remains of the old bull, Wabi paused again. He knew that the Indians frequently preserved moose and caribou heads through the winter by keeping them frozen, and the head at his feet was a prize worth some thought. But how could he keep it preserved until their return months later? He could not suspend it from the limb of a tree, as was the custom when in camp, for it would either be stolen by some passing hunter or spoiled by the first warm days of spring. Suddenly an idea came to him. Why could it not be preserved in what white hunters called an Indian ice box? In an instant he was acting upon this inspiration. It was not a small task to drag the huge head to the shelter of the tamaracks where, safely hidden from view, he made a closer examination. The head was gnawed considerably by the wolves, but Wabi had seen worse ones skillfully repaired by the Indians at the post. Under a dense growth of spruce, where the rays of the sun seldom penetrated, the Indian boy set to work with his belt axe. For an hour and a half he worked steadily, and at the end of that time had dug a hole in the frozen earth three feet deep and four feet square. This hole he now lined with about two inches of snow, packed as tightly as he could jam it with the butt of his gun. Then placing in the head, he packed snow closely about it, and afterward filled in the earth, stamping upon the hard chunks with his feet. When all was done, he concealed the signs of his work under a covering of snow, blazed two trees with his axe, and resumed his journey. "'There's thirty dollars for each of us if there's a cent,' he mused softly as he hurried toward the Umbabika. "'That ground won't thaw until June. A moose head, and eight scalps at fifteen dollars each, isn't bad for one day's work, Rod, old boy.' He had been absent for three hours. It had been snowing steadily, and by the time he reached their old camp, the trail left by Rod and Mukoki was already partly obliterated, showing that they had secured an early start up the river. Bowing his head and the white clouds falling silently about him, Wabi started in swift pursuit. He could not see ten rods ahead of him so dense was the storm, and at times one side or the other of the river was lost to view. Conditions could not have been better for their flight out of the Wunga country, thought the young hunter. By nightfall there would be many miles up the river, and no sign would be left to reveal their former presence or to show in which direction they had gone. For two hours he followed tirelessly over the trail, which became more and more distinct as he proceeded, showing that he was rapidly gaining on his comrades. But even now, though the trail was fresher and deeper, 
so disguised had it become by falling snow that a passing hunter might have thought a moose or a caribou had passed that way. At the end of the third hour, by which time he figured that he had made at least ten miles, Wabi sat down to rest and to refresh himself with the lunch which he had taken from the camp that morning. He was surprised at Rod's endurance. That Mukoki and the white boy were still three or four miles ahead of him he did not doubt, unless they too had stopped for dinner. This, on further thought, he believed was highly probable. The wilderness about him was intensely still. Not even the twitter of a snowbird marred its silence. For a long time, Wabi sat as immovable as the log upon which he had seated himself, resting and listening. Such a day as this held a peculiar and unusual fascination for him. It was as if the whole world was shut out, and that even the wild things of the forest dared not go abroad in this supreme moment of nature's handiwork, when, with lavish hand, she spread the white mantle that was to stretch from the border to the Hudson Bay. As he listened, there came to him suddenly a sound that forced from between his lips a half-articulate cry. It was the clear, ringing report of a rifle. And following it there came another and another, until in quick succession he had counted five. What did it mean? He sprang to his feet his heart thumping, every nerve in him prepared for action. He would have sworn it was Mukoki's rifle, yet Mukoki would not have fired at game, they had agreed upon that. Had Rod and the old Indian been attacked? In another instant Wabi was bounding over the trail with the speed of a deer. End of chapter 4